Andrew Talks to Chefs is an independent podcast. For current and past episodes, Andrew's blog, contact information, and more, please visit andrewtalkstochefs.com. To support us, please visit patreon.com slash andrewtalkstochefs. Enjoy the show. I'm Massimo Bottura. This is Amanda Cohen. This is David Kinch. This is Mike Anthony. This is Huni Kim. This is Amanda Freitag. This is Richard Blaze. This is Paul Kahn. This is Curtis Stein. This is Stephen Harris. This is Missy Robbins. And you're listening to Andrew Talks to Chefs. I think to be an entrepreneur and to be successful in whatever terms you deem success is just never giving up. Whatever you want to do, you can do it. You just have to never give up at it. And sometimes it happens at the right time. Sometimes it happens too early. Sometimes it happens too late. But it'll happen. If you're really committed to the thing that you do and, the, and you love it and you really understand it, then other people start to believe in it too. That is the voice of Ariel Arce of Niche Niche, Air Champagne Bar, Tokyo Record Bar, and other establishments in New York City, and the author of the new book, Better With Bubbles. She is our guest today on Andrew Talks to Chefs. It's gonna take a prolonged arrangement of the senses to make some sense of this. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Andrew Talks to Chefs. I am your host, Andrew Friedman. Our guest today is Ariel Arce. Ariel, if you don't know, has been dubbed the Champagne Empress of New York City by none other than the New York Times. She is somebody I know socially a little bit from before she opened her first place. She's somebody I've always liked, and it's been great watching her success over the last few years. Ariel owns and operates a cluster of champagne-based establishments in Lower Manhattan, Air Champagne Bar, Tokyo Record Bar, Niche Niche, and Special Club. And she is also dipping her professional toe into the world of caviar with her brand Caviar. Get it? A-I-R, Air, Ariel. And she has a new book that debuts on November 3rd. That's the day after this episode drops. The book is called Better With Bubbles. And I do link to more information and where you can order that book from the episode page for this conversation at andrewtalkstochefs.com. Ariel and I sat down outside on McDougal Street just about two weeks ago, and it was a beautiful day. There's a lot of reassuring New York street sound in the background as we talk. And with that, I'm going to get right to it. This is my conversation with Ariel Arce. Here you go. It is a early October Monday. It's a beautiful day in New York. We're sitting out here in, I guess we're technically what, in Soho? Greenwich Village, West Are Village. Are we still Greenwich Village? Yeah. Okay. Tip of no. Soho? But aren't we just below Houston? We are. Okay. But they still That's like Soho, don't really it? call this area Soho because okay. we're like west of west. West, west. Okay. West. Anyway, we're here on McDougal, sort of. And um, it's like a late summer day. It, you know, uh, we took our masks off. We're sitting down out here. It almost feels normal right now. Mm-hmm. But I think probably for both of us, until we connected, it didn't, right? We both had, we were masked up and you're doing your thing differently. I'm doing my thing differently. Um, what, what's it like for you? We're just right now, just in your life and your professional life. How are you, you know, we're almost seven months into this thing. Right. Um, if I just throw it out that broadly, how's it, how are you holding up? Right now actually feels kind of good. Um, there was definitely a very large chunk of time where things just felt hazy because you never knew what your future was going to look like and you couldn't plan and everything felt really stressful and ominous. Mm -hmm. And now I feel like we've come to some sort of settlement, um, that we're just going to exist <laughs> within the circumstances that have been provided for us. You know, we have no choice. Right. Um, you know. I just went out to Los Angeles for a week. Oh, nice. And they, I went purely for vacation, and they are so much behind us right now of living in angst and, and stress because they reopened and they had to close. You're talking specifically industry people? Just or LA in general. In yeah. general. Everywhere you go, you feel the anxiety. And that's kind of where we were, I would say, in like March, April, May. And... 
I really applaud New York because I really think New York, as much as I hated how communication went with our local government, I think we've done it really right so far. And I feel okay. I feel kind of normal now. Um, I wear a mask like when I don't even have to wear a mask sometimes because you just forget about it. Right. And I think our staff is really small here at the restaurants and we've all kind of gone through a lot of things together that now it is so much of a teamwork environment and everybody kind of knows the rules and we play the rules together and things are starting to feel good. Mm-hmm. Good. But, yeah. Do you, can I just, it's a bit of a tangent, but do you have any insight having spent a week there? I have not been to LA since this all went down. I'm particularly baffled by LA right now. I don't oh, understand yeah. it. Me too. The, the density is not even a, a fraction of what it is here. Nope. Um, it's a lot of, how do I put this, like-minded citizens mm-hmm. <laughs> to what we have here. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very well-informed citizenry. Um, it's not a political thing. It's a left, it's more, California as a state is actually by percentage more left-wing than New York as a state. There's so much wide open space. The temperatures are bad. Like, I can't get my head around. LA, and LA listeners, you know I love you guys. You know how much time I spend there. It's the first place I'm going when this is over. But it doesn't make sense to me. My, Do you have any insight? My feeling was exactly the same as you. I was so confused. And I think LA is kind of like isolating. You spend a lot of time in your car. You spend a lot of time in your home. And I think there is kind of just that little maybe for forgetting moment that like when you get out of your car and you go in to get your coffee, maybe people weren't wearing masks or like, yeah, you're at the beach, but nobody's really that far away from each other and you're not wearing a mask. Like, right. As so the silly fact as that the you mask have so much conversation space. is right. like wear it or don't wear it. Like it's the only thing that's protecting the spread. So, it is the only weapon that you have as protection for yourself and for others. And if people are not wearing them, then that's a problem. And in New York, like you just don't walk down the street and see people not wearing masks. Like even sitting outside in restaurants, people are wearing masks. Like in my building where there's 13 residents, everyone wears a mask in the hallway and in the elevator. Like it may not be necessary, but it is the only thing that you have to protect yourself and to protect others and I think LA just didn't really do that because you're not seeing people in mass all the time. So the whole thing becomes like an abstraction. I think so. The threat, the the preventative measure, it all just right. That makes sense. So right, then you can be you can go for hours without coming within twenty feet of another human. Whereas yeah. here the minute you walk out your door You're constantly yeah. being bombarded yes. with Oh my God, there's somebody in my personal space, around my space, we share space. Yeah. And I think in Los Angeles, like you just don't process that in the That's same way. Right. So that would be my my only thought as to why they had that kind of surge. And now they're like totally freaked out, yeah. as we were totally yes. freaked out. Yeah. So it was a really nice vacation in some respects because there was like nothing to do. <laughs> and I brought my dog because I thought Los Angeles is like the most dog friendly place on earth because everybody's like super entitled and loves their dogs. Yeah, what it wasn't? I've and seen no, private. no really? restaurants allow you to bring dogs even if you're sitting outside. And Can you go into a Starbucks with it? Is this like a COVID thing? Because I was there just in December and like every coffee place I went into, yeah. there were like three dogs. That's what I thought. Except like <laughs> everywhere that I was, no dogs. So we rarely left the hotel. Oh, man. And dog- took our dog to dog beaches. Right. But at least I got a week's worth of like legitimate rest. Oh, oh well. Which okay. was nice. Well, I'm jealous you got to LA, which is yeah. probably my favorite. I mean, it was also, the weather was perfect and it was magical. And I highly recommend getting out there I anytime, the even if it's just to sit by the water. First place I'm going. Okay, this is one of my favorite kind of interviews because you and I know each other. Yes, we do. In passing, a little more than in passing. We've hung out a few times. We've had some in, meals. in groups. Yeah. In group situations. I've, I've come, I've seen a couple of your places. Um, uh, but, you know, we've never had an extended one-on-one conversation. I don't know your story. Mm. I've read parts of it. There's <laughs> things about it that are we have in common, so I'm, I'm interested to probe them a little. But cool. why don't you just start... Um, just tell us where you where you were born and where you grew up. Okay. Um, well, I was born and raised in Hell's Kitchen, 
New York City uh, on 38th Street and 9th Avenue, which is basically right above Esposito's Butcher, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Which has been there forever. Been Generations. Yeah, yep, Manganero's, Hero Boy, and Esposito's. <laughs> um, and I was a very active young child. I did gymnastics four days a w- five days a week, 20 hours a week. Um, I was a professional actor from the age 8 to 18, commercials, voiceovers, uh, Law and Order episodes. Oh, really? <laughs> All the good stuff. I used to know the casting director of Law and oh, Order. Oh, where Lynn were you? Lynn Kressel. And <laughs> Lynn Kressel. What's her name? Suzanne, a woman named Suzanne. I did so many auditions at Chelsea Piers for Law and Order. Um, and I, you know, my parents basically, I went to the famed school, LaGuardia, uh, for high school, and... It was always just expected that I was going to be an actor and I was, you know, a very theatrical human being who was going to do something in that space. And after college, I went to University of Michigan. Um, I just felt like really disenchanted with that industry. I felt like to be a successful actress meant that you just had to be beautiful and you had to be in the gym all the time and you had to be so worried about like the petty petty parts of being a human rather than just being talented um you know I think had I not been like a five foot two Jewish girl from New York that maybe there would have been some other opportunities to be anything other than a non-genue character but that was just like what was being presented to me isn't that like sitcom gold (laughs) yeah but I like wasn't pretty enough or funny enough and I know now looking back on it that like none of that probably would have mattered but to like an insecure 18 year old I was just like you were no, insecure. Thanks. Oh, aren't we really? all? Still am, of no, course. You exude confidence. I, you exude confidence. I am. I've learned my confidence. Okay. I would say that there were definitely a solid ten to twelve years in there where you're just figuring yourself out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really believe in fake it till you make it as well, too. Right. So, you know, that's right. my acting training coming in, of course. Okay, I want to back up a minute. So you mentioned, the, when you mentioned the number of hours that you did gymnastics as yeah. a kid, that is clearly very, you were, are we, can we say you're very competitive? Very competitive. Is that, um, do you consider yourself competitive in general? With myself. With yourself. Which is the worst competitor. <laughs> Because I was right. never good enough, right? Well, one of my favorite lines uh, anyone ever said to me was, other people judge you by what you've done. You judge yourself by what you know you're capable of. Ugh, it's brutal. It means that it's never ending. It's never ending. Ugh. Yeah, I'm the same way. I totally feel that. So, and then the acting thing, how did that start? Like, when you say it was always kind of assumed, were you nudged in that direction? Or did you find it yourself? Were you like a... Did you love going to the theater and watching movies and television? And My mother was an artist. Um, she was a photographer, but, you know, we lived a f- couple blocks away from Broadway. I grew up mm-hmm. going to the theater. We grew up going to the opera and the ballet and museums. And I just grew up in a household of culture. Um, and so I was living in Connecticut at the time. It w- I was about eight years old. We had just moved out there because living in Hell's Kitchen, the first language of the local public schools is Spanish. Literally. Literally. At the time. I don't know if it still is, but um, my options for public school were not so great. And my mother did the classic Jewish thing where she was just like, we're moving out to the (laughs) suburbs. And uh, we got there. She was not happy. We moved back very quickly. But while I was there, I just told her one day that I wanted an agent. Really? When you were about how old? Eight. Eight years old. I said, I want an agent. And she said, (laughs) You have no clue what you're talking about. Um, And I said, no, I want an agent. She said, okay, well, if that's something that you want, like you have to prove to me that this is something that you're going to do. And I appreciate my mother very much, but she was a very uh, intense woman who really felt like if you were going to say that you were going to do something, you had to prove that you were going to do that thing. It was like she didn't believe that I needed glasses because she just thought it was something that I thought was cool. And then she took me to the optometrist and they're like, your daughter's blind. (laughs) (laughs) Like there was no trust there until the trust was proven. So um, So in some ways, this this equips you well for life. And in some ways, yeah, yeah. like you got to prove it. Right. Right. So um, she took me to the Comedy Cellar, which had once a month a like children's performance night. And I did some sort of acrobatic 
dance singing routine and ended up winning because I was almost so bad that it was good. Like it was comical how silly I was. Can we just say the comedy cellar's on the same street as yeah. your, all your businesses? Everything comes full circle. That in is my amazing. Life. I am where I'm supposed to be. I do believe that. Um, do you it's know, all know very... him? Do you know him? No. Oh. <laughs> Not at all. Okay. Do you know who I'm talking about? The owner of the comedy cellar? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, no, I don't, okay. sadly. Okay. I wish I knew those guys. He's my guys. neighbor, that's why I'm asking. Oh, well, I'd love to meet him one day. <laughs> that's hilarious. Uh, yeah. Okay, so you won that, and then so that so got you the that. green light to. And then my, it just so happened we had a family friend who worked for uh, Broadway Video, which was Lauren Michaels' company, and he was like, "Okay, she like maybe has some talent. Like, let's introduce her to some agents in New York." And I got signed to Wilhelmina, and that was it. Started coming into New York for auditions. It gave my mom an excuse to move back to New York. And then from basically like age 8 to 18, I would be auditioning all week. Now, when you say Wilhelmina, I always think of them as a modeling agency. Yeah, they had like a child's division. Oh, really? Yeah. For like, acting? For acting and modeling. Okay. Um, Like I, I didn't really dabble into modeling, but... If you saw me, I'm clearly very much not a model. Um, but, you know, young kids doing young, cute things. Right. It works. I only read it in um, the sketchiest, a sketchy, like, most broad way. But your mom was a fashion photographer. Is that accurate? Yeah, she did fashion. She did still life. She right. did, uh, she was, like, Avon's in-house photographer for a long okay. period of time. Yeah. Okay. So she, she was a hustler. Oh, massively. Okay. So, but, so that's not, you know, fashion's not quite the same thing as acting, but it's on the, it's on the edge. It's in the, vaguely in the entertainment realm. Was she at all discouraging of you wanting to go into that world? No, she was so disappointed when I went into the food and beverage industry. Oh, really? I remember she once said to me when I first started, you know, auditioning, she would say like, you need to get prepared for a lot of disappointment. And also, you're going to have a lot of rejection, so you should start practicing carrying plates because you're probably going to have to wait tables one day. And I said, I will never wait a table. Why? I just thought that was, like, the lowest form of any job I could ever do. Really? And here I am, That's so waiting funny. tables. Did you guys go to a lot of restaurants? Did you? Absolutely. You did? Yeah. Did you like dining? We love to dine, but we didn't, like, fancy dine. We... New York City local dined. You know, like a really nice restaurant for us would be going to like Blue Water Grill, right? Okay. Like New York City classics, yeah. not like going to La Bernadette or right. something like that. Yeah. Although, you know, my parents in the 80s would have to entertain clients and they would take everybody to Le Cirque or Le Grand Oui or they would go to Tower on the Green or, you know, La Bernadette. And my dad has just the most fond memories of that time of dining in New York and and as a side tangent, he worked in the in the restaurant business in New Orleans in like the heyday of white glove service at Brennan's and Christian's. Funny story, my uncle, Uncle Henry, um, is a chef, was a chef, and he was offered the job at Commander's Palace, which he turned down, and then they offered it to Emerald. Oh, so right after so I got Paul like Perdome a, took off. I got wow. a food food beverage life blood inside of got it me. so there you weren't hurting for advice when you started down this path no and I like grew up with these stories of how amazing it was to work in this crazy weird business yeah and also my dad saw such a different side of that world than I did but mm-hmm. like when I started working after college in the restaurant industry I felt like I was so prepared for the worst because I had heard all these crazy stories of people getting stabbed in the kitchen and like everybody touching each other's butts and like you know what it meant to like work in in that industry and and I was so comfortable you know I I really I think that I probably was in some shady situations at times and was just totally fine to handle myself yeah I didn't so notice how how far did you get with the acting thing um you know through college I would still come back home and I'd audition for things but it was pretty much right after I graduated which was in 2009 and like the economy had tanked in 2008 and there was no jobs really um I actually did graduate with a job to work at Herbert Bergarf Studios, which is on Bank Street, which is a really reputable theater company. Um, and I like did a little like grip and electric work, working on films, mm-hmm. but I wasn't in a union and I didn't know 
really where I wanted to be in that business. And so I just started working at a catering company out of Chelsea Piers. And here we are. As a um, server? Yeah. I was like a server and a bartender. And okay. then I started making recommendations on like how they should be using fresher ingredients than what they were using. And then all of a sudden I was running the kitchen. I was cooking in the kitchen with my father. Like I'm not a good cook, but I would take my dad's recipes and I would cook this food. And then I was running the bar program there. And I was like 21 years old and had no clue what I was doing and kind of loving it mm -hmm. and just realized like I need to, I need to educate myself a little bit. And so I moved to Chicago. Yeah. Now what, why, what brought you there? Well, I'd gone to school at university of Michigan. So a lot of my friends had moved there and a huge part of my upbringing is that my mother was very sick most of my life. And I have a lot of these um, reoccurring experiences of going somewhere and then coming back to take care of my mother. So after college, I came back to New York because my mother wasn't very well. Her and I kind of had this little agreement, like, if I get better, you know, you should really go somewhere else. You shouldn't be stuck in New York just because you came home to take care of your mother. So she did. And so I moved to Chicago because I had friends there and and actually had a job there. Um, and then three years later, I ended up moving back to New York again for many reasons, but one of which was because my mother was sick again. And so it was this kind of reoccurring uh, life pattern for me. I don't want to, I don't want to pry into the nature of it, but I mean, and I, I don't, I hope it's not too, uh, painful for me to mention it. But Very you, comfortable to talk about it. But you lost, you lost your, I was in the New yeah. York Times, so yeah. I assume I can say it, but yeah. you, you, you lost your mom not all that long ago. Yeah. She, uh, she actually passed away six months into opening my first restaurant. So she wasn't really present during the building of that and really never got to see it or see, you know, what has come since. So it was um, it it was a huge weight lifted off of my shoulders, if I can say that truly, after so long of seeing her in pain. But it's also a sadness to know that, you know, my mother is definitely still watching me. I know that very much, but mm -hmm. that she Big didn't really get when to you see it that. in real yeah. life. Yeah. All right, so you go to Chicago, mm -hmm. you get a job mm -hmm. working um, for, well, I mean, working for Grant Ackett's group. <laughs> that came a little bit later. Oh, I was go like, ahead. No, I was just like kind of like hustling again, like getting jobs, faking it, essentially, telling people I knew what I was doing, like bartending and had no clue, but would learn on the fly and had some really great teachers along the way. Um, and eventually it did lead me to a job. Uh, working for Chef Ackett's, yeah. Mm -hmm. So I, I have to ask going into this because not people who end up being cooks, right? Because that's why they're there to begin with. Yeah. I know a number of people who have done very well for themselves in different aspects of the business who started off with a gig working for one of Grant's restaurants. Mm. It seems like there's something about that group mm -hmm. that... Um, is so intense for people. It seems to really kind of turn something on in people. And, you know, Dave Barron, who has dialogue. Do you know Dave? Yeah, I just dined at um, Which one? Pajoli. I love Pajoli. It's lovely. I love Pajoli. But, you know, uh, his uh, chief his chief of operations, Anne mm. Singh, H-S-I-N-G. Mm. I hope I'm pronouncing it right. She was like a, an MIT business grad who did like on a whim, you know, like a little stage at Alinea. You know, and now she's running a company with Dave, right. you know, and, and there's a publicist in New York, Rachel Walensky, you know, who did an internship once at Alinea and became like this marketing person. And, you know, here's you who, you know, wasn't really where your, you were, your ship was headed, right? right? Right. What is it about that group, if this applies to you? But it seems, it does seem to really kind of get people in this hospitality tractor beam. I will say it's two things. I think that there is an amazing intersection between not only fine fine food and wine and cocktails, but theater. I mean, they really go through every single step of thinking through every possible scenario and then taking all that information and creating theater out of it. I mean, an experience at any one of his establishments feels from start to finish like you are seeing a regional performance. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, you know, that spoke to me because I think for the first time I saw, like, a, not only can a restaurant, of course, be very militant in how it executes, but it can also take 
fun and playful elements and incorporate that to heighten that experience. Mm -hmm. And I, I, on the other hand, think that what they do very well is the people in high places there in management, whether they're trained to or whether they are hired with this kind of je ne sais quoi of spotting interesting people, Mm -hmm. they definitely hire people who have unique skill sets. Mm. So when I was hired, I absolutely was not qualified to work. I mean, I was qualified to work there because I was capable, but I wasn't qualified to work there because of my resume. Okay. And when I had my interview... And we should say you worked at Aviary. Well, this is where I was getting hired for. Oh, yes. Which we haven't said, but which was the bar... Specifically the office. Okay. So underneath the Aviary is or was a 18-seat room, subterranean, that was in the beginning, essentially catered to VIPs and specialty guests mm-hmm. um, or people who like spent a lot of money at Next or Alinea or Aviary and then got invited to come right. down. Um, and it was unlike kind of any of the other spaces because it wasn't molecular in any way. It was just really beautiful, like luxury items and the most intense selection of spirits, wines, cocktails, etc. Um, that I had ever experienced. And I remember on my interview, I don't even know the position that they were hiring for. I think they were hiring for a bartender or a server or something. And when I met the man that was hiring, he like took me on a little tour and we went into the office and I said, well, this is where I want to work. And he was like, well, we're not really hiring for this. And I said, okay. And he said, well, you know, like, why would you want to work here? And I just think like, this is going to be the place that I am going to excel. Mm-hmm. I can tell that there is going to be like an ability for me to provide a level of service that I want to provide, that I'm going to be able to learn something here very deeply, just with the immense amount of things that are on the shelves here. Um, and in three days, I was like hired for that position. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure there were things that transpired along the way to make that happen. But yeah, so... I think that he noticed very quickly that I was dedicated and determined and that I was able to articulate the thing that I wanted to bring to the table. Mm -hmm. And he listened to that. You know, I think a lot of times you have somebody working in your space that is capable of something that you're not utilizing them for. And that was the one thing that I really feel like I took away from that experience there was use the assets that you have hire people who maybe can do things that are specialty or, you know, really focus in on employees who maybe have a skill set that can add to any sort of experience to make it better. Um, And that's how I hire now. Mm -hmm. Uh, I really don't look for people with resumes. I don't look for people that um, have so much experience that they're going to come into the table with all of that and try to impact what we're currently doing. Yeah. I like to hire people that one are very nice and kind because I'm not very nice and kind all the time. <laughs> so at least if I'm in a place where I can't perform that, they can step in and do it. Um, and then I like to hire people that can do something that I just don't know about that I, that I can't do. It's, um, it's too much to run a restaurant and you, if you want to set out to do something really cool, you need, a lot more moving parts and bigger pieces than yourself to make that happen. So what do you mean when you say you're not very nice and kind sometimes? You know, in this business, you are all consumed all the time with a lot of things that rarely have to do with like what you're actually doing in that moment. And I still bus tables, wait tables, like work on the floor. And sometimes if I'm just, I've got too much stuff in my head, you don't I'm, have the bandwidth for like no, bedside, have, bedside for manner. pleasantries. Yeah, no, right, and right. like I also shouldn't be that person. Some nights, some nights it should be somebody else who's on the floor, whose job there is to make people feel good. Um, and a lot of times, like I stay in the back and I polish glasses or dishes. Does, or, I mean, I'm assuming <laughs> that also might include members of your team. Oh, like, it is members of my team. No, but I mean, being showing that kind of warmth to like. Team oh. team members oh. in the in the. There, I try to have um, a lot. Try to make space for. I that. do. Okay. Because, again, like I've worked in so many places where I just wasn't really treated well. Mm-hmm. Like not because the people that worked there were not 
good human beings. It's because they didn't prioritize humans. Mm -hmm. And I think the people that work in these restaurants are the reason why these restaurants are so special. And I don't believe that the customer is always right. Mm -hmm. I believe that there's two sides to everything, which sometimes gets me into trouble because I'm always a kind of a devil's advocate for everything. And I think like you really need to hear people out and let them feel that they've been heard and if you can't make time for that, then you cannot be a good leader. Um, and it's hard, but mm. it's important. So where, when you take that job at the office, where were you in terms of your interest in making this, this let's just call it this world generally, your life's work, or at least your work for the foreseeable future? And where were you in terms of thinking of yourself? And for me, this is a very distinct category of person as an entrepreneur mm, well when I went there not like none of these things were crossing my mind I think the way I felt was I didn't go to school for this business I have no formal training period I'm just trying to gather information as much as possible I'm just trying to grow myself and that doesn't always make you the best employee because I'm not I wasn't there to like be a company woman um, I was there to learn and when I was done learning, that wasn't going to be somewhere I was going to stay because the environment for me was not nurturing. It wasn't very healthy. Um, mm -hmm. You work really long hours all the time for not that much money. Um, so I was there to get an education. And I definitely was considering that this was a business I wanted to be in. I wasn't sure what. Like, or I wasn't sure. Where you I, fit in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I was just like, the thing that I want to do is gather as... I knew that I wanted to be a part of the beverage world. I was not going to be a chef or a cook. I didn't think that I was going to be, like, a front of house, you know, manager. Um, I just wanted to be a specialist in something beverage related. Because what, what about that drew you? I love the history of beverages. I always mm. say that men get into the beverage industry because they're hiding alcoholism. Women get into it because they didn't want to study for the bar exam. <laughs> There's so much to learn. Okay. <laughs> and I've encountered a lot of people in, in my life in this industry, uh, men and women who are incredible. But, um, you know, I think a lot of women go in to get really connected to wine and spirits specifically because there's such a historical element there. and every single spirit has a history to tell. And so once you start kind of understanding these different individual spirits, um, some of them you connect to more than others. And while I was at the office was when I fell in love with champagne. And mm. that was really when I thought my life began. Do they have a particularly uh, like involved sh uh, champagne program there? Or are you just... That was something you gravitated toward. Yeah, no. Um, my one day off was Sundays. And at that time, I would buy a bottle of champagne because I had maybe 10 or 12 different bottles of champagne on the list at the office that I had no clue about. Like, didn't even know how to talk about them, understand them. I kept realizing that champagne was such an enigma. Mm -hmm. Like, everything I thought I would learn or know would not be true. Mm -hmm. So, on Sundays, I would buy a bottle of champagne, and that then turned into, like, two bottles of champagne, and I'd start buying vintage wine, and... All of a sudden, I was just like, wow, I'm really excited about this. And then I would bring that into work, and I'd start selling champagne. And then, of course, everybody was like, wow, your ticket sales are getting higher and higher. What's going on? I'm like, yeah, because I'm adding my multiple hundred dollars yeah. worth of champagne to everybody's check every night, right. you know? Um, but, you know, that experience was really about understanding every single thing that existed in that room and then finding each customer a different thing to be excited about. And also when I was there, um, I worked with this guy, his name's Jason Ceballos. I think he is quite possibly one of the best bartenders to have ever lived. And he unfortunately passed away at a very young age. Um, and he was my counterpart in that room. And he made the drinks and I serviced the room. And Jason would get very upset if all I did was sell cocktails because he'd have to work very hard. Mm -hmm. And so he was very adamant about me kind of um, 
mixing up everybody's check. So through that, I learned my service style of how to be able to talk to people about all of these different offerings that we had and make them sound just as exciting as a $20 cocktail. Mm -hmm. How do you sell a glass of scotch to somebody who maybe never thought they were going to have it or a tequila on the rocks, you know, when you have 50 different options of tequila. Yeah. Um, And so I would just study and I would beg. I would beg to be educated. And I don't know, that really like stuck with me again for so much that I wanted in, in the future if I were to ever have a place was, you know, providing educational materials to people and giving them more than they could ever ask for mm-hmm. so that they would feel uh, safe on the floor mm-hmm. like they felt confident I yeah. think that's a very female thing as well too women really like to over educate themselves so that they feel confident whereas like, men will just go out there and kind of do their thing um, that's another thing I've kind of noticed in my experience where oftentimes I have my female employees begging for the materials where my male employees either come to the table with the education because they've kind of been doing it nonstop, or they're just like I don't know I'll figure it out mm-hmm. Um, we like to feel equipped. Right. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I love your like Nas. Really, like, hmm, I don't know if I agree with you on well, that it's, one. Well, <laughs> it's it's I'm the exact opposite of that, but I take your point. Um, I can't argue it. So, um, this had to have been an incredibly um, heady time to get turned on to this world. I would think. I mean, you're at this restaurant that's taking i mean this group at mm-hmm. the time that you were in the middle of mm-hmm. is like just up 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 absolutely um not just in the united states but just you know eyes of the of the world of hospitality on it um the cocktail culture i mean i know champagne became your thing so but the cocktail popular. culture there was this like rediscovery of you know uh the classic cocktail culture and the celebration of all of that and a lot of terrific writers writing about all that and then you know all these new classics happening you know and the two places restaurants most people think of uh, is that group and then they think about um um you know uh what um, leo and uh you know was doing it like the nomad Mm -hmm. right a couple years later Mm -hmm. i mean that's i mean another i mean obviously at julie here in new york and but there were so many it was insane wine was like non-existent in Chicago when I was there. In fact, like, if you were in the wine industry in Chicago, it was like, I wanted nothing to do with it. It was kind of pompous. It was arrogant. Where the Seemed a little old. Maybe it was was... old, but it always just came with this kind of, like, air of pretension that I wanted to stay so far away from. And cocktail culture was just young and fun and fresh, and everybody felt really creative and, you know, like... What did it matter to spend 10 to $12 at the time on a cocktail? Like, nothing. 10 and to 12 That's what it used to be, you know, at that time. Not at the aviary, <laughs> like, but everywhere else, you know. Was, a, that what, was t- I thought you were working at the... <laughs> at the aviary, it was $20 for a cocktail. I you know, know, that was a big deal. I know. But And that was like the first place that was charging right. that much yeah. for it, right? Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, I mean, just the world around us, all of the fun up-and-coming cocktail bars, people had all this cool stuff on there, and it was yeah. relatively an expensive barrier to entry, and, and it was just fun. Yeah. Um, in the same way that Chicago really cares about beer as well, too. Beer is a really fun part of the culture there. Um, I th- would say that it's only in the last few years that the Chicago wine scene has become something that's, like, really noteworthy. Interesting. So you, um, all right, so you feel like you're in the middle of something. There's something going on, yeah. and you're there for it, right? Yeah. Okay, what brings you back to New York? Well, I had a moment where... When you work in a place like that, you are completely dedicated to it. You can't drop anything on a dime. You are the only person that holds the job that you have. You know, you show up if you're sick. You show up, you know, if if something's going on in your life, you check it at the door and you walk in. Um, But I couldn't do that because my mother was very sick and I needed to be able to go back and forth to New York. And I was also really excited about Champagne. And there happens to be a place in Chicago called Pops that has been there for, must almost be 40 years. It's about, they were 30 years when I was there. Um, And I had gotten offered a job to work there. 
And their selection is just one of the best selections in the world, outside of Champagne, really, or private cellars. Um, the beverage director at the time, this guy Craig Cooper, had been just collecting for 15 years, and the family themselves were just massive lovers of Champagne. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, well, if this is something that I'm really excited about. This is the place that I need to go work to do that. And I did. I went there for over two years. And, you know, we would have... 15 things by the glass and everybody that came in, you know, would share things with you if they bought really amazing stuff. So over those two years, I probably tasted thousands of champagnes. So when I left at the age of 25 or 26, you know, like I had this catalog of champagne in my brain because I was so obsessed, like like to the point of I would probably jump off a bridge if champagne told me to do so. I was like, there's something here that I can do something with, but I don't know what yet. Did you consider yourself, I mean, you're working at this place, Pops, known in Chicago, not really like that well-known, right, mm-hmm, in, the, mm-hmm. in general. You're, you're still a kid. Um, did you consider, how, where would you have put yourself in terms of people with knowledge specifically of champagne? Like, did you think that you were in possession of like a rare level of knowledge like yes. you think you were in the top five percent of yes people in terms of absolutely having tasted it able to talk about it my peers like the people that I worked with there Peter Leem you know a couple other journalists m- maybe a few other people that worked in other amazing champagne bars around the world like that those are the only people that had that type of encyclopedic knowledge of champagne at the time outside of champagne even when you would go to champagne and talk to the most prolific winemakers when i first started going there at the age of like 24 so you know almost 10 years ago people were barely drinking their like neighbor's wines Mm -hmm. it's amazing how fast plus the internet plus instagram plus like democratic clubs in champagne has changed even that region for people to be tasting more than ever Mm -hmm. like it happened very very quickly and it was just at the right moment which i will i should have like started this entire conversation that i'm a very lucky person some people don't like the word luck because they think like you work really hard for stuff and then you get it but like i know that i'm born under an auspicious sign at lived a lot of lives prior to this one. And I think that I'm just very lucky because I was in the right place at the right time to get the right amount of information to set the foundation for what I would do unbeknownst to me. I take your point. The only thing I would ask you though, is I think that recognizing when something appeals to you right i think that is a skill in and of itself you have to recognize signs and and be willing to act on them right you know like like when you you know when you talk to kid i mean maybe now like chef maybe even bar maybe mixologists would be on the list you know um you know like when you talk to kid what do you want to do when you grow up you know (laughs) champagne expert eh, yeah you know nobody says that right (laughs) champagne bar mogul (laughs) but to, to see something that you know that it excites you, that you, look, not everyone has a good palate. You obviously had a good enough palate to know what was good and but what wasn't. But how lucky am I to be born with that? Yes, I understand that. But I do think, I don't know, I feel like that's slightly selling I'm downplaying this one piece a little bit short. Because I do think, <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's a lot a of people's niche. stuff, it becomes a hobby or it, yeah. yeah. I, uh... I am downplaying my thought process, which was, if I'm going to be a specialist in something, I want to be a specialist in an industry that is not cool or trendy and is never going to go out of style. Every single year, it's got holidays literally dedicated to it. Nobody is in this space. It is not monopolized at all. I have a massive opportunity. Mm -hmm. And I was very aware of that. And the thing is, is like to get a job working with product champagne means one of two things. You either go into sales Mm -hmm. or you work for a brand. Mm -hmm. And I had no interest in either one of those things, which meant the only opportunity for me if I wanted to continue to working with it was to open a champagne bar or a restaurant that was champagne focused. So were you already thinking in those terms when you come back to New York? Absolutely. You were. So then the jobs you took here... Was that with an eye toward amassing enough hospitality chops to open your own place? 
Yeah, so I mean, I came back to New York for the first time ever, no job. <laughs> like, what year is this, two, roughly? 2013, Okay. I think, yeah, or roughly around then. Um, no job, like applied to something through Craigslist. Long story short, it introduced me to two people who you know very well, which is Max and Greg. Mm-hmm. And These are the guys behind Olmstead. Yep. And Max and Greg were both working at a place called Omar's. Mm-hmm. But that was a kind of pivotal moment, I would say, for all of us because we were all in a very weird professional space and we were all very desperate to change it. And Greg introduced me to a woman named Sarah Simmons mm-hmm. who was opening a restaurant called Birds and Bubbles. And she was the birds and she needed the bubbles. Beginning, we should say that's what exactly what it sounds like. That was a yeah, chicken, was a fried chicken and, and champagne restaurant. And champagne restaurant. Um, she made insane fried chicken, which totally convinced me. Like, I, I never had really eaten fried chicken before. So, like, it convinced me that that was a really amazing product and I could work with it. I could take something that was high fat and put high acid next to it and... I knew that I had the chops to put together the coolest champagne list in New York and, you know, at, a, at very fair prices, which was really important to me, too. Um, and that was just like the beginning of my experience in New York. And, you know, I, I was with her for almost two years. And then I went with uh, Robbie DeRossi, who had opened a small little champagne bar called Riddling Widow. Um, and pretty much six months into that, he told me that he wanted to sell the, the business that was in that building because there's an upstairs and a downstairs. And it was about another six months or so until like he really decided that he was going to sell it. And then I kind of positioned well, what it would it look like if I bought it. And that is now where Tokyo Record Bar is. And I put Air Champagne Parlor upstairs and... Mm-hmm. I don't know. Again, like things lined up at the right time and I felt like I had an eye enough to say, I'm not going to lose an opportunity here. What does it involve for me to do that? And it was terrifying and stressful and I did too many things probably a little too young or too early. It's but so funny you just said that because I was going to say, well, on top of all this, you were really young. Yeah. I opened my first place at tw- 28, 29. Yeah. I like, just turned 29. Now, was that... I mean, you just said it in a way that I feel like answers the question. But, I, you know, the question I would ask is, was that kind of exhilarating or was that frightening? I mean, it's, yeah, both. Both. It's been a wild ride. I've opened four restaurants in three years and written a book that comes out next month through Rizzoli. And I've launched a caviar company and a jewelry line and also worked with a lot of other people doing other projects it's just been a wild few years. It's great. And, to- and yet you look in the middle of a pandemic, well-rested and Thank fairly you. happy. Thank you. So let me get back to this thing I asked you before, the entrepreneur piece. Mm-hmm. You are, I mean, obviously you're an entrepreneur, yes. whether you would call yourself that or not. I call myself I mean, an entrepreneur before anything else. That is, and to me, so you'll know what I mean by this. I think a lot of entre, you know, one of my favorite, um, you know, the whole reason Amazon sells books is there were two do you know this story no but there were two no it was the no the way the um all all the books already had uh coding Mm. that made it very easy to incorporate them into an online commerce site right and there was one other business that the same thing was true of so it was in terms of incorporating the product into the site mm. into the business it was, it was very turnkey there. but it wasn't like jeff bezos was like a book maniac right right he had this business idea right. I, that to me says everything about entrepreneurs like like if you Seize an opportunity in hindsight whether or not you thought of yourself like that as a kid mm-hmm. as a young in your 20s if you would want you know if things had fallen slightly differently and you'd gotten turned on to something else you'd probably be doing eight things in that realm Absolutely. the way you're wired right Absolutely. When did you realize this about yourself? Because I think that is it, it, it is a very distinct, There's you have to have a capacity for risk. Mm-hmm. You have to have a lot of energy. Mm-hmm. You have to know how to motivate and lead people. Right. Um, 
um, and you, I mean, honestly, I don't know if you, I mean, you use the word brand, I think, as we were talking, but you know, in, at some level, you have to understand that concept, whether or not you call it that, right? Yeah. Like, you are a brand, and each of your individual operations is a brand unto itself, right. I think. Yeah. Does that, do you agree with all that? Oh, 100%. Um, you know, it's, I think a lot of people have the capacity to do everything and anything that they want to do. And we've kind of already touched upon this, but you have to have an awareness to be able to step, step outside of it and really analyze a situation and say, what can I do with this? Or is this work taking the risk or not taking the risk? Um, I really think that how you are raised and who you are as a person from the moment of being born says a lot about what you are going to do with your life that you are equipped to do with your life. And then you also have lifetimes behind you that allow you when you are born to do certain things that you have to learn to tap into. They're already innately inside of you. And that has nothing to do with nurture or nature. They're just in you. Um, and I think when I really look back on on who I am now, the only reason why any of these things exist is because I realized that like my best assets were my parents and my upbringing and all of the drive that got pushed into me from a very young age allowed me to persevere. Um, and I think to be an entrepreneur and to be successful in whatever terms you deem success is just never giving up. Like, whatever you want to do, like, you can do it. You just have to never give up at it. And sometimes it happens at the right time. Sometimes it happens too early. Sometimes it happens too late. But it'll happen. And if you're really committed to the thing that you do and, the, and you love it and you really understand it, then other people start to believe in it too. So I got really obsessed with a podcast called Startup because I thought that there might have been a little entrepreneurial blood in me. My parents both own their own businesses. Um, and I started listening to this one guy's experience of what it would take to start a podcasting company. And then that show went on to start interviewing other people in other businesses, what it would take to start and finish a business. Um, and then I started listening to How I Built This with Guy Raz. And I would start crying in these really? episodes because I felt so connected to these people's experiences. I was like, holy shit, like if they can do it, like why can't I do it? And I felt so inspired to start just making models, start putting my ideas down on paper, start writing, start floating things by people. You know, anytime I met somebody who is like truly successful in my mind, I would run an idea by them and like work out moving parts. I was really driven to thinking that I was going to create something. Mm -hmm. And I remember hearing on this podcast that they said, you know, if, if you believe in something enough, the likelihood that there are other people out there who believe in it is pretty high. And the world needs your thing mm -hmm. if it's something that you really believe in. And so when I was like, can I have a small little champagne bar on McDougal and like, it's going to be all female focused and we're going to price all of our wine at one time markup and like we're going to offer caviar at cost and we're going to do all the little luxuries affordably and it's going to feel warm and welcoming. Is anybody going to come? Like, yeah, they are because other people want that too. You know, it's, I've mentioned it on this show before. It was one of my favorite lines and I think about it with successful restaurateurs, bar owners, chefs. Is when I was a kid, I'm dating myself, but when I was a kid, Raiders of the Lost Ark came out. Yeah. And I, that was the day, and I don't know if you know this, about, but I was in the film business for five years. That's what I did right out of college. Um, you know, and my friends and I were all, you know, it was like we all wanted to be Spielberg and, and Lucas. And, and, and they, were, they would give these interviews when they made Raiders of the Lost Ark because they were big fans of these like old movie serials, right? Cliffhangers. And... One of them, I think it was Steven Spielberg, said, I make the movies that I want to see. Absolutely. And that, to me, that's what makes for a successful person in the hospitality world. You I am create, my customer. Yeah. You created places that you would want to go hang in. Yep. Yeah. Because I have I mean, that so sounds much... overly simple, but honestly, I think figuring yeah. out who you are, if you want to be in this business, 
that's a huge piece of it. And when you said earlier, you're not insecure, you don't have insecurities. When we opened airs, I had no clue who I was, truly. I was going through a massive life change with a parent. I was trying to do my first thing very young and I was trying to play by all the rules and do, even though I wanted to do something like outrageous and avant-garde, I was still like playing it pretty safe. And it took me basically until after the day that my mother died to be like, why am I creating a place, this is how I felt when we opened it, that I'm in charge of and I'm not setting the, my own rules. I'm following everybody else's rules. And I had a lot of people in my life at that time who were talking in my ear of what I should be doing based on their experiences. Mm -hmm. And I was listening. And I tell people now because, you know, oftentimes, and this is very honoring to me, I get young girls all throughout Instagram reaching out saying, I'm in business school, I'm in high school, I'm in college. Um, I'm really trying to figure out what I'm doing with my life. Like, I, can I interview you for, and, and I take all of them. And I respond to all of these people with as much of my like personal experience that I can and say like, do not listen to what I am saying as universal. You have to take that information. You have to put on your blinders and put some like little stickies in your ears and hear the things that make sense for you. Because Trying to create someone else's vision in your place is going to make it not only unsuccessful, but probably fail. And I use the word failure not as a negative because I've had so many failures in my life. I use them as learning tools because if I didn't fail at those things or they weren't successful in what I consider to be success, um, then I wouldn't know how to do the thing that I really want to do. And... I think that was a real turning. It was a pivotal pivotal moment for me because when my mother did pass away, my staff at the time really stepped up to take care of everything. They let me not show up to work for a month. You know, they gave me so much room to grieve and breathe. Um, and I realized in that moment that this was so much bigger than myself and I finally had found a group of people who were on board for this vision with me and I was like everything I've ever learned about management or leadership is all out the window now and we start fresh and we was that something you conveyed to your team did you share that you had had this epiphany um I don't I don't actually know that I think my attitude towards everything changed I think I became more patient. I became more human. I didn't think of myself as the boss anymore. I didn't think of myself as being in control. So when I started listening to everybody's opinions and incorporating them, we would make decisions based on group thought rather than, you know, at the end of the day, like I got to say, this is what we're going to do or this is what we're not yeah, going to do. Yeah, you called the play. But right. I no longer wanted to be in, like, quote unquote, charge. And that that is the reason why we have four places now and why everybody that works in them is such a unique human being and those make our spaces better and more enriched and my life better That's <laughs> you know great. huge smile you also i've heard you say in other interviews um have have relatively low turnover you tend to hold on to your people yeah um Actually, COVID was the first time pretty much since we opened that we had some staff change because it was an opportunity for people to really address their lives. And after multiple years of working in these restaurants, like, is that what they wanted to do for mm -hmm. the next few years? I hire a lot of really young people who don't have a ton of experience before they work in the restaurant business. So maybe they want to go experience something else maybe this isn't the industry that they want to be in in the first place like it's really amicable mm -hmm. um and i really like to encourage people to follow their dreams because i would be a hypocrite if yeah. i didn't yes you know that's I'm putting it mildly <laughs> can i ask you uh, this may be the last thing i ask you but you mentioned it twice and if it's not too personal you you've twice now alluded to past lives mm, yeah i mean are you a practicing buddhist along what lines do your feelings about that 
fall? I believe in two very conflicting things. And they're like my universal beliefs. And I always ask people this when they're trying to navigate maybe tough situations or they're trying to just figure out like what they're doing with their life. And I'm like, well, what do you measure yourself by? And for me, I believe that everything happens for a reason. And I also believe that you can only be in control of yourself. So those two things are conflicting because one says the world is much bigger than me and there's a plan for all of these things and they all have purpose and there's a reason for all of it. And the other one is very, you know, uh, singular. And it Mm -hmm. says, like, I can only control me and uh, the world revolves around me and the things that I choose to do and I can trace back every decision that I've ever made to a decision that I made prior to that. There's a chain of events. Mm -hmm. And they all exist with, with reason. And when my mother was like in her very last days, we had a rabbi come over and we were talking and he was like very, very surprised at how well I was doing with the situation. I was like, well, I've had a lot of years to prepare for this. Um, and he said something to me that was like really beautiful where he said, you know, you have these two, two thoughts, but you're not really connecting them, which is that everybody else around you is making decisions and they're all doing their own thing and their their choices in life or their actions are something that you have there's nothing you can do about that so it doesn't really matter it's all just happening and for me i've had a lot of moments in my life where i've felt a, like I fundamentally believe this is true and I think it's because I've experienced it before I've lived it before I've done something similar to it before and I know that it's going to work out this way or it's mm-hmm. going to work out that way and I think tapping into that and really trusting yourself not trusting your gut like that's different but having this wave that comes over you where you say like I know that this isn't going to work out or like this is going to be really good you know like and really believing in that I think that has to do with your past life experiences and I have so many people in my life that are the same age as me Mm -hmm. and some of them are true children and beings and some of them are old human beings Mm -hmm. and young people's bodies and it's not because of how they're, they're raised. It's right. where they are in their life journey and their cycle. And when we talk about karma and things like that, like why do really bad things happen to really good people? It all happens for a reason. And there's, there's got to be a beauty to why the, these terrible things have happened to this really good person. So if I incorporate that into my professional life mm-hmm. or if I incorporate that into my day-to-day, I think it helps me get through a lot of really big things and at the same time things that truly don't matter that much like I work in the restaurant industry I'm not like curing cancer I'm not you know and that's what we all say right this is not like art every day but at the same time there's a lot of people employed here there's a lot of livelihoods we do a lot of really cool stuff I get to live a really incredible amazing life and I just have to acknowledge that, you know, there's a reason why all this is happening and and that I'm able to do it. <laughs> I mean, I mean, just, you know, it's interesting. You know, for me, there's always a tennis analogy for everything, you know, and there's a phrase in tennis. People say you left they left it all on the court, mm-hmm. you know, like you may still lose. Mm-hmm. But if you, you do everything that you can do, mm-hmm. the rest of it, you might catch a bad bounce. You know, the other person may just be a little bit better, you know. But yeah, once you kind of once you understand that that's really all you can do and let go of the rest Mm -hmm. and uh, a lot of stuff does fall away it's not to say i'm practicing all the time you know it's not to say that i everything's easier said than done (laughs) but sometimes you have to step back and you have to just say i'm gonna release this and i'm just gonna see what happens and hopefully it's gonna work out And that's our show for today. Again, my great thanks to Ariel Arce. If you are in New York City, please support her establishments and please check out her new book, Better With Bubbles, 
Again, links to all that on the episode page for this conversation at andrewtalkstochefs.com. A huge thanks, as always, to After School Special for our music. Please check out their album, Double Barrel, Single Entendre, on iTunes. Please follow us on Instagram. The handle there is at Chef Podcast. And please rate or review us at Apple Podcasts, which does help more people find the show. Thank you for listening, and we will be back very soon with another episode of Andrew Talks to Chefs.